Eleven minutes until showtime. Ten minutes until showtime. Nine minutes until showtime. Eight minutes until showtime. Seven minutes until showtime. Six minutes until showtime. Five minutes until showtime. Four minutes until showtime. Three minutes until showtime. Two minutes until showtime. One minute until showtime. Your show will go live in five seconds. Four, three, two, one. That's a thing. Conscious fatherhood. All of us can fuck and make babies. If you got a dick, you can make that happen. That don't make you a father. Exactly. That just makes you a sperm donor. Well, it might make you a father. I'll put it this way. It might make you a father, but it don't make you daddy. Because everybody don't call their father right. daddy. Daddy is a different level. There was a woman on my co-host, Michelle, who did not have her father in her life. Her mother and father were never married. She will not mind me saying this because she said it all before in this space. Her mother and father were not married. And years later, she found out that her father got married to another woman and had children. So she had half brothers and sisters. I don't like that term half, but that's how people talk about it. But she had brothers and sisters from her father and his family. And yet she never knew him. And he never made an attempt to know her. And every interaction, her words that she had with him was negative. She'd have to recover from every interaction with him. And the last time I talked to her about this in this space, he had just died. She found out through the family grapevine that he had died. So to never know your father, for him to never be a part of your life, and then for him to die with no closure or completion on the relationship, that's devastating. That's a hole that you know a lot of hopelessness goes into that death because you know that you'll never really have a chance to fix and make any of that whole and right again. I find that every brother that I've talked to, I can say 99, 100% of them, if there's a hole in their heart anywhere, It's the father hole. You can bring any brother to tears when you get them talking about their father. Not that that's the goal to make them cry, but you can see in this world of where men are supposed to be so macho and be so strong and to be so beyond emotion. Talk to them bit by bit, step by step about their father and it will bring them to that place of vulnerability. I'm talking about black men. Yeah. Because a lot of us have experienced father absence or father abdication. In my case, it was father abdication because he was there. My parents had been married for 60 years. My father was physically there, and yet he was completely emotionally distant from his children. And as a child, you do not understand that. Why does my father not take Mm -hmm. any time for me? And if you're going through your own shit as a young man developing, you're going to automatically blame it on yourself. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? You're going to do that. That's just what a child does. So for me, it was father abdication. For many brothers, the father was never there. As I've grown up, I understand more the landscape that these brothers grew up in. I'm 55. My father's 87. How old are you, brother? I am 51. I'll be 52 this year. 51, 50, going on 52. And how old is or was your father still with us? That's the reason why I wanted to talk to you. I'm not sure. Okay. If he were alive, he would be, because he's 20 years older than my mother, he would be 91. Wow. He would be 91. And I am not sure if he's alive or dead. I can't find him. And I found out that he may have passed away from a friend's niece who doesn't live far from him. So the house he was living in had been remodeled and refurbished and somebody bought it. I have looked to the Texas 
Department of Vital Statistics for a death certificate for him, and they said that there is none on file with his name and date of birth and original place of birth. So he has a daughter from a marriage, and I don't know if she's put him somewhere. I reached out to her, and she never did respond. So I don't know if my father is dead or alive. Love those positive vibes With a man who don't mind taking a chance It's Robert Wesley Branch Be well, be encouraged, be inspired Every day, hey, hey, yay Be well, be encouraged, be inspired Every day, hey, hey It's the Robert Wesley Branch Show Brother Christopher. Yes, sir. It has been a minute since we've talked to one another. I know it is a wonderful thing to hear your voice in real time. You too, man. You too. It's been since 2017. That's five years. I know. Wow. It's been five years since the last time we were exactly. here together. Mm-hmm. You doing all right? Wow. I am doing good. It is a sunny 29 degrees, unusual 29 degrees in Houston. When I think of Houston, I do not think of 29 degrees. We don't either, and I'm from Houston, so this is quite unusual. Right. I don't know how you feel about this, and I really don't even know why I... Well, I kind of have some thoughts about why I feel this way, but as a black man, there are two states that I try to stay out of. Florida... (laughs) You're going to say Mississippi and Texas. Oh, Florida. Florida and Texas. Okay. I hesitate to say it because I know you're a Texan, but I just feel like, I don't know. It's just something about those two states. I guess it's what I've absorbed through the media. Although I know you and a good brother who's from Texas and I know other brothers that are from Texas, but it's just something about Florida and Texas. When I'm there, it just feels like, brother, be on your P's and your Q's. And you are rightly so. I think it is some of us who are from some of the largest cities, Dallas. Houston, Mm -hmm. Austin, those experiences can be quite different from the smaller and even rural communities of Texas. So there is some level of insulation from the bigger part of what Texas is in regards to its relationship with black people. Mm -hmm. So whatever you're feeling, you are dead on. But like any advanced species, we black men, black women, black children here in Texas have become accustomed to how we move and speak in the state of Texas. So much so that sometimes we can kind of gloss over what the state of Texas history really is in regards to black people. But but you are very much on point. We have just figured out how to move. So they let us be and we let them be and we just all try to be together <laughs> under that construct. Right. And it's not healthy. It's dysfunctional. But it works up to this point. But it is changing. And so what we experience here in Houston, Dallas, and Austin is starting to filter out. Not that those particular cities are immune to some of the travesties that happen to black people, but it's certainly not as intense as and in your face as it is in some of the smaller communities in the state of Texas. Right. Now, you mentioned Mississippi. Now, I've only been in Mississippi like maybe one or two times, but truly, I literally felt like I was stepping back in time. It scared the shit out of me. Oof. Yeah, and every... Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Every time I go, I have an issue with the state of Mississippi, so much so that I end up having an issue with the people. 
Mm-hmm. And I have to correct my thinking about that because I understand the restraints that they are under. But right. just like we here in Houston, they're doing the same thing. They have found a way to function in that dysfunction. Right. I have to be a lot more open-minded and I have to watch my thinking process when I encounter individuals from Mississippi. So they are doing the best that they can under the weight right. of what Mississippi has put on its people. So, yeah. I feel about Mississippi the way you feel about Texas and Florida. Well, we're together on that. We, <laughs> we both need to just stay the hell out of Mississippi <laughs> if we can. In all your travels, have you been to other places in the United States where you thought to yourself, you know what, I can make this home? No, I have not. Overseas, yes, but not within the continental United States of America. I have not. Okay. I think she has done a very good job of letting black people know what their place is in her through some of the people that control her and run her government. But I, there's no place in the United States. I'm like, oh, you know, I could live here. So I've been on the West Coast, the East Coast. I just, I have not found a place. I'm like, you know what? I could move from Houston and make this a really good run and feel like there's some level of equity and balance in the races that occupy this space and nowhere. And if you find it, please let me know. I mean, I'll be more than happy to visit and, you know, and rate it and score it, but I have not discovered one as of today. Well, let's dig a little bit. Have you been to the DMV, the Washington, D.C., Maryland area? Loved it, okay. yes. I was thrown by the inner city blight, and it scared me. Right. Although we have those areas here in Houston, there was something eerily different and more woesome about it when I was in the DMV, mm-hmm. I literally could have cried. Yeah. So I have been there, loved the partying and the good time and the people, but to live, I, I, I could not imagine. Even if I were able to live a good life. Okay. That's interesting. That's where I'm from. I, grew, I was born in Washington, D.C. I grew up in the suburbs of Maryland in what is called Prince George's County. And I, I understand what you're saying when you talk about the blight, because it's there. It's there in every city. What you just articulated is what I found when I walked a couple of blocks one night in New Orleans. And to be quite honest with you, brother, I can't say that my intentions were all that holy, <laughs> but I was walking. I'm going to leave it at that. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I just happened okay. upon some neighborhoods. I was in the French Quarter in a hotel, but I just decided to go for a little walk one night. And I was shocked at what I saw just a few blocks outside of the French Quarter because that same blight exists. Exactly. Yeah. And I was like, wow, you know, they keep this really kind of hidden from the tourist guides, which is true in every city. Exactly. They point you to where they want you to go. Yeah. So that blight is real. It's true. It's in probably every city that we can mention. The plus side for me of Washington, D.C., being the nation's capital, the federal government, as we all know, it has always been run by white folks. Mm -hmm. But the local government of Washington, D.C., the District of Columbia, has been black from the top to the bottom forever. So growing up and seeing black people in positions of power was very empowering for me. And Mm -hmm. I can definitely see, just like you saw that blight in Washington, D.C., there's also what we call the Gold Coast. And it's full of black folks. Really? Yeah, upper crust black folks. And that's true in every city. That You can point me in Houston, a lot of your clients maybe, probably live far away from the blight. So it's true. It's true everywhere. It's true everywhere. And like you, I haven't found, you know, I've been around a time or two, and I haven't really found any place in America 
that I would say that I could call home. I came close. Have you ever been to Santa Fe, New Mexico? Never. I have not been to Santa Fe, New Mexico. Try that. Just go for a day or two. It is really beautiful. The people have this sort of mentality. It was just very relaxed. And I just found it. It felt good. It felt really good. Wow. America, she's still trying to catch up to the vision of herself. Mm -hmm. And I just, I don't know if that will happen. As I get older, I have to give a side eye to these miraculous, wonderful forefathers who crafted this constitution. I'm like, can you just lie None of that was, it wasn't people. They were the people and everybody that wasn't white and male and Christian, they were not the people. And they don't teach you that in school. That stuff you have to learn as you get older and you experience life. And the older I get, the more irritated I get about this picture that they paint about America and the forefathers and what they wanted for the country. And I'm like, what they wanted for the country was for it to stay into perpetuity the way that they set it up and how it was running at the time that they set it up. So no, I am not enamored with them or give them any praise. Yeah, the America, she's still trying to catch up with the vision of who she was supposed to be. And she just hasn't made it there yet. She's still sitting in front of the mirror trying to crimp and prod and curl iron and put on makeup. But she hasn't made it yet. She, she's late to the party, real late. And I don't know if she's ever going to get there. Yeah, I agree 100%. I don't know that we'll see it. If she does get there, I think we might be in another place <laughs> at another time. What you say is very true about the founding fathers and being white and Christian. And I would also add to that landowners, because the older I get, yes. you know what I'm saying, brother? The older I get, the more I realize yes. that most of us, and this includes white folks too, most of us are only, if we're lucky, and do get the American dream, just look at how small that plot is. You got your little front yard and your backyard, and God bless you for it, but that's it. I live in the that's middle it. of, that's it, brother. I live in the middle of nowhere at the beach in Ocean City, Maryland. And so it's nothing but cows and cornfields and ocean. And every day I say to myself, uh-huh. who the fuck owns all this land? I mean, these folks got land. You hear me? Land. Land. They're farmers. They got land. And we just don't, we never got it. We never really got black yeah. people that kind of land and businesses. Just go to the grocery store and look at yeah. all those labels. Kraft, Kellogg, I mean, all the brands, Campbell's. Those are families. Yeah. Those are families who got land and businesses and we just didn't, still haven't. We're coming a long way. You know, this new generation, these younger people, they got these, what they, the brand, everybody's a brand now and I totally get it and I understand it. A lot of that is not tied to land and it's not tied to the kind of money that I'm talking about, but it's certainly getting us, moving us in that direction. It's moving us in that direction. And one thing about Houston that I love, the few times that I've been there, going from one subdivision to the next, it's just land. And one yeah. subdivision it's is like, spread out. yes, it's very spread out. And one subdivision is like its own village. I like that. <laughs> I think you all have actually have more land than, than we do in terms of the people who have gotten a piece of land. Even in Mississippi, some of our brothers and sisters yeah. may yeah. have a little... Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, have little pockets of land. That's what they don't teach, too, in school. I think our brothers and sisters need to know. And I certainly did not make these smart moves coming out of college and and starting my business life to really invest in some land and get a business on it if you can. Land. Yeah, so important. Yeah. 
So important. So we've talked about so many things over the years, and we're not going to talk about nothing that we've talked about before. Today, we're going to cover some new ground. Let's see, because you first came on in November 6th, 2010. That was our first season. Today, brother. Wow, are you for real? Yep, that was 12 years ago. Oh, wow. That was the first time you were here. And today, you are kicking off our 13th season. So you're the first show in our 13th season. Wow. Thank you. That that is an honor. Yeah. I feel touched by that. Thank you. Thank you, brother. You're welcome. And thank you because here's the truth, brother. After 12 seasons and going into 13, there are only, and I can count them on one hand, a handful of brothers that I've met in this space that I've continued to invite back to the space to learn more and more about their journey as it unfolds. Only a a handful. And you're one of them. But it's only like three or four or five of y'all that I've met and have actually had relationships with over the years. Most people is one and done. You know, they come on and promote their album or their book or their business or whatever they're doing. And it's over and they go on and do their thing. And I go on and do my thing. But you I've had on over and over again. So it's something in your spirit and in my spirit that is familiar, that is good, that is comfortable, that is purposeful, that is meaningful to me. And these conversations have helped me. I hope they've helped you. I certainly know they've helped the people that have heard them. Oh, wow. So I appreciate you. All that I have to say, I appreciate you. No, I appreciate you. This is a kind of an awkward segue, but did you know Otis Randolph, author of- I did know Otis. He was a part of Brother to Brother. That's how I met Otis, was through Brother to Brother. And we became very close and did some things outside of Brother to Brother, you know, lunch or coffee or something like that. But yeah, he was a beautiful soul. I absolutely loved Otis and he was an inspiration to me and was always encouraging me to facilitate more and things like that. And then when he did his book, we uh, reviewed his book, which we ended up doing in three parts because it was just to know the author. That was the first time we had ever experienced reviewing a book and having the author be a part of Brother the Brother. So it was an amazing experience to know him. He's on that list that I was talking about earlier of the handful of brothers who I've had on a couple of times and and had conversations with him. In fact, with him, I actually had a lot of conversations offline, too, like not in this space, because we always talked about getting together because he's was in the DMV for a period of time and amongst all his travels and journeys. And we kept saying we're going to get together and saying we're going to get together. And we both meant it when we said it. And unfortunately, it never happened. Mm -hmm. And then one day, right. I mean, it was literally like we have 15 minutes i don't have co-hosts anymore but when i did when dante and michelle were here and maisha who's passed away when they were all here we were in the pre-chat one day and dante just brought it up oh you know i was so sad to see that otis randolph passed and i was like what and he was like yeah and so he sent me i mean literally it was like three minutes before we were going to go on air and he sent me the facebook notes wow. and i was just man i just cried it just i just cried some of it was out of guilt because i just said to myself robert you know you got to do better man when you say you're going to get together with somebody do it don't put that kind of stuff off yeah yeah that brother yeah that brother is gone and i didn't know him well enough to know what he may have been going through physically and if there was any illness or whatever i didn't know i had to search for clues and still don't know and it's not even important i didn't know him well enough to know what that journey was but certainly exactly you know i just it was a loss yeah it's just a loss so. Yeah, he was, he was an amazing experience. He was such a champion of mentally healthy black men. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Such a champion of that and always sought to ensure that he in some way added to that or added to the building block of that. And I really appreciated him. Mm-hmm. We really, really did. 
He had a story similar to, and this leads us into what we are going to talk about today. His story, as it related to his father, was very similar to so many brothers that I've talked to over the years and similar to my own story. It was either father absence or father abdication. So either the father wasn't there at all, either he wasn't there at all, the father, that's father absence, or he was there, but emotionally unavailable, which is father abdication. He just did not take up the mantle of leading the family forward as as I believe a father should. So some of that over the years, I've been taking clips of different brothers that have been on at different times and putting them all together in what I've been calling the father-son chronicles. That's one piece. And then the other thread was there's a series that we did around about the time, the last time you were here, we started it in 2017. It was called Conscious Fatherhood. And so I've been putting clips into that whole series. Check the mic and make sure it sound right, boys. So let's go all the way back, if we can, as far as your memory and your life experience can take us to the mm-hmm. earliest part of your life and when you were born 51 years ago, almost 52 years ago. What mm-hmm. do you know about your mother's relationship with your father at the time of your birth? At the time of my birth, my mother was 17 and my dad was 37 when they met. She started bar backing at a club that he owned. Mm -hmm. And he was married already at the time and he wooed her. And so two years later, at the age of 19, she and he had a son whom they named Christopher Charles Evans. And he stayed married. He made a promise to her that he would leave his wife and go with her. And she held on to that promise until their little boy was 13 years old. And she finally came into some clarity of life that this man is not leaving his wife for me. Because four years after I was born, they had a little girl, my sister. The first memory I have of my father that I can truly say is real is actually my father and mother having gotten into an argument at our apartment. He did not live with us, of course. And it was one of his late night rendezvous that he would make to our apartment, which was maybe about 10 minutes away from the house that he lived in with his wife. Mm. The first image I have of him is standing downstairs in the courtyard of the apartment complex. He and my mother cussing and fussing and he is butt naked because she has chased him out of the house with a butcher knife. Mm big enough to kill a dinosaur that is the first image i can actually remember of my father and them cussing and fussing and the people and the neighbors coming out and because it's like two three o'clock in the morning trying to figure out what is going on that's the first memory i have of him i had to have been i was probably 11 or 12 11 or 12 years old wow This was right before their breakup, right before my mom was like, "Mm, I can't do this anymore. I'm done. And we ended up moving to a better side of Houston shortly after. I'd say no more than it was probably less than a year. We ended up moving away from there. And she ended her relationship with my father. So when your dad was coming over for the late night rendezvous, did you see him? And did you know that that's my father? Oh, most definitely. So there was, you know, he would make financial contributions. He would always give my mom money if we needed anything. So we did see him during the day. We even went to the rodeo with him a couple of times shortly there after that fight. So those are some additional memories that would take place. I remember going to Louisiana to his hometown. Mm -hmm. I remember meeting his mother. We walked up to the door, my sister and I, 
And his mother from inside the door said, don't bring those bastards into my house. So we turned around. He took us back to the truck and he went in to visit with his mother. <sighs> Words that hurt. And that's the only memory I have of my paternal grandmother is her calling my sister and I bastards. I understand now she wasn't angry at us, but she could only direct it at us. because My father was very much her caregiver financially and physically. So she couldn't get mad at him and cuss him out and call him names. So you do it to the least entity able to have any fight back. You do it towards the children. Right. I understand that now as an adult. Yeah. So do I. And if I just take exactly what you said, literally, she really wasn't talking to you all. You just heard it. She was talking to your father. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah, she wasn't talking to y'all. So I agree with you. She was talking to him. And that was really, brother, and in those times, that was what she was expressing to him was shame. And that was her emotion and what she was feeling at the time was shame. Because black folks, we had it so hard. And just to try to do the right thing and grow up and just follow the tradition of getting married and having children, you know, that was just our emotional. I mean, we could spend all day talking about why a wife... And this is just in the heterosexual context. It's never enough for a lot of these brothers. And even if you're talking to gay context, why a partner or a husband for a lot of these dudes? It's just not enough. And I ain't getting into anybody's bedroom. And if you want to bring other people in and that's an agreement, I understand all of that. That's not what we're talking about. A lot of these dudes, straight or gay, what they have, and this is just something I think that's in the mail. We'd have to go back to the time of Moses when men have multiple wives and stuff to figure this shit out. Why it's not enough for a man? Like why he got to fuck everything around it's just boggles my mind particularly as somebody who doesn't have partnership in my life i'm always you know saying well damn you know you got what appears to be a good thing why is that not enough what is that sometimes it's just what we have is just not enough yeah it's just not enough it it is discipline and for me in my life i pray for a lot of things and now that i've gotten older i wish someone would have told me if you petition god for anything petition him for discipline Mm-hmm. And then everything else will fall in place mm-hmm. for me. And I'm speaking in an I statement. I wish I would have known that I would have been before the throne begging and pleading. Just give me discipline. I'll get all the other stuff with the discipline. I can do it. It's not bowing or cowtailing to this image of what a man is supposed to be. It is an old question that I don't have an answer to because I, too, have to come to you have this, why are you doing this? And you don't think about that till after you're through with the act. Totally. Why the hell did I do that? Exactly. Why? I get so, it, brother. I totally get yeah, it. I've been here. That is the story of my life, which will not be told today, but I get it. I'm talking to okay. myself when I say why. I'm asking myself, why is it not enough? Oh. <laughs> Let me ask you this, though. Did your mom ever go on to marry? No, my she, mom never went on to marry. Okay. She wanted to. That was her desire. Being born in the 50s, um, that would have completed for her, her life. That was a goal for her. It has not to this point happened for her. Yeah. And see that, that right there, I'm just, that right there, I don't know what your mother and your father's love story was. There was some courting there. There was some affection there. That relationship lasted for over a decade. And yet, and there were promises involved. Promises that set your mother mm-hmm. up with certain expectations. And this is classic. I don't want to in any way diminish the seriousness or emotion of it. This is a classic. This is Claudine. You ever seen the movie Claudine? This is a yeah, classic so. storyline. So. Okay. The brother is always promising something and it just never comes through. It just never happens. Yeah. And yet there's this whole life 
I'm speaking of your mom now. There's this whole life that kind of gets arrested development. It just kind of stays where it was because now you've got children. And then so that man, mm-hmm. who, whomever he was, will be taking on you and your sister and your mom. And that's a package, you know, and at that time, that wasn't as common for people to do as it is now. Exactly. And so that was your first memory, seeing your dad outside the apartment complex, butterball naked with your mom yelling at him with a butcher knife in her hand. A couple of years later, y'all moved away from, <laughs> from that space to another part of Houston. And how often, if at all, did you see your father or hear anything about him at that point in your life when you were in another location in Houston? Only when we needed money. That is the only time my mother would reach out to him is if. We needed money for something for school or just in general to live. Because by that point, she had moved up in corporate America, and so she was making a decent living. But there were still things, school supplies, school clothes. So we would actually physically see him maybe two or three times a year, and it would never be more than 10 or 15 minutes. I have never, that I can remember, spent more than an I can't remember even spending an hour in my father's presence. A productive hour. I remember, you know, we drove to Louisiana with him, but it was quiet. We didn't interact with him. I've never interacted with my father until I became an adult. And even then, those conversations were still very, very surface. We never got into you being my father and being married and being in a relationship with my mother. How did that come about? How do you feel about me as a son? How do you feel about my sister? We've never had those conversations our conversations were always about whether what are you doing how some of your aunts and uncles so i've never had real conversations with my father so when you're 11 12 and he's standing outside naked with the butcher knife pointing toward him i'm asking for a little boy's impression now because you were a little boy like how would you describe your father did you think he was cool did he dress nice did you think he was slick what were your impressions of him oh god my father was very handsome and i understood that he was. He wore a fedora. When we would see him, he would smell good. He wore English leather like he wore his skin. Mm. But he was always dressed to the nines. Every time we saw him outside of work, he owned his own auto mechanic or what they call a junkyard back then. Mm -hmm. So there was a big difference between seeing him at work and seeing him dressed. He always drove a Cadillac, but he was always clean and sharp. Now, I came to find out that he was very messy. He was very, he wasn't nasty, but he was, he loved clutter. Oh my God, he loved clutter. My sister picked that up from him. (laughs) I hope she didn't hear it. But yeah, he's very much like him in that instance. But he was very handsome. I understood why women fell in love with him. Beautiful black chocolate man. Head full of hair. He was always slim, even as he was older. My father always had a six pack. Yeah, very good-looking, very charming, and he stuttered. And I think that was a part of some of his attraction to women because somebody that stuttered like that would never be conniving, I think is what most women would have thought. So, yeah, I always thought he was handsome, but seeing him downstairs that day, the first time, my first memory of him, clearly, he looked small, he looked defeated, he looked scared. And I didn't know who he was. I didn't know who he was as a man. And I didn't very much like the reaction that he generated from my mother on that particular day. And did you have any, because 11-year-olds are pretty sophisticated now, did you have any idea of what was going on between them to cause that scene? 
I knew from listening in on some of my mother's conversations with her girlfriend right. that she was tired. When is he going to leave her? We have two children. It was coming up on 12 years. When is he going to leave? And as she started to expand in the world and learn more, she was like, no, this isn't right. There's more out there for me. I just have to go get it. And I'm not going to be able to go with Charles, which was his name. That's where I get my middle name from. Wow. With Charles in tow. And so I think it was her part in starting that separation or the beginning stages of her leaving. Because I do remember shortly thereafter, maybe two weeks, he had come over again. She left the house and called him while he was there at our house and told him she wasn't coming back until he left. Mm. And I remember him cussing and fussing at her. And he packed up his stuff and he left. And when I say stuff, I mean wallet and keys Mm -hmm. and his hat. And he left. And my mom called. I picked up the phone, and she's like, is your daddy still there? And I was like, no, ma'am, he's gone. And so maybe about 45 minutes later, she, she finally came back to the house. Let's talk about your mom and, and whatever you want to share with us about her. You were born and raised mm-hmm. in Houston. Was she also born and raised in Houston? My mother was born in Shreveport, Louisiana. Wow. And her backstory. She has seven, including her, there's seven siblings. She is the only one that has a different father. So when my grandmother, her mother, was pregnant or got pregnant, it was with a gentleman named Early Small, and that would be my grandfather, and he has passed away. My grandmother gave my mother to her brother Mm. because her husband was being released from jail early, unbeknownst to her, Mm -hmm. is what I understand. And so my mother grew up thinking this uncle was her father and this aunt was her mother, when in actuality, it was not so. When my mom became 12 or 13 years old, she was having issues with who she thought was her mother. Child Protective Services got involved and they weeded through all of that and my mother ended up being placed with her biological mother and all of her siblings who she thought were her cousins were like oh my god you're our sister how did this come to be and so the story gets a little muddy and back in those times you know i believe women did what they had to do to survive because my grandmother never worked a day in her life so hence my mom's irregular relationship with her siblings and just kind of being marginalized in that situation back in or, or in that home now was not comfortable for her. So hence her being 17 and on her own meeting my father because there really was not a, a home life for her. Because as children, you can kind of imagine what you're supposed to be our cousin. You, they're telling us you're our sister. And, and then all of their anger, because they don't understand, was directed towards my mother because they couldn't be mad at their mother and father. Right. So all of their anger was directed towards my mother. Yeah, what you're describing is the black folks adoption system. That's just how we did it. We didn't go through courts and stuff. We handed off the child to somebody in the family who was able to take care of it. That's just what we did. That's how we survived. At what point did your mom move from Shreveport to Houston? She may have been two or three years old. Okay. Maybe two or three years old. From what she can recall and what she can gather from her mother before she passed away, she was probably two or three. So her siblings grew up in Shreveport and she grew up in Houston. She grew up around them here in Houston. She thought her mother was Aunt Rosie. That's what they called her, Aunt Rosie or Aunt Rosetta. 
and she thought they were her cousins. In, in actuality, they were her half sisters and brothers. Okay, now, brother, you stop me because I'm gonna go all the way as far as I can, as far as you take me. I'm gonna go. So, do are okay. you aware of what took your grandfather to prison? No, I am not aware. And okay. at this stage of my life, I can't acknowledge him as my grandfather because he's not. Okay. My last name really should not be Evan. That was my grandmother's married name. But on my mother's birth certificate, that's what she put. She oh, put okay. Evan. But my mother's last name should have been Small because that was her father's last name. Oh, okay. Wow. So my grandmother connected with Early Small while her husband, Mr. Evans, was in jail. Mm-hmm. And then Mr. Evans got out of jail right after she had given birth to my mother. And so the word is to keep Mr. Evans from killing her. Right. She gave my mother to her brother. That's real, and brother. He raised my mother as his own. That's yeah. real. Let's not overlook that. That's real because your grandmama could have ended up dead if she didn't make that choice. So that's because that's yeah. back to shame. Now, what do we know about Mr. Is it Smalls with an S or Small? Mr. Early Small. Mr. Early Small was from Shreveport, Louisiana, hence how he met my grandmother. He went into the military, so he found out about my mother being born shortly in the time span before my grandmother transitioned my mother over to her brother. And so my mom said when she finally talked to him, he told her, I asked Rosetta to give you to me, and I asked, I was transitioning to San Francisco. And she told me no. And so my mom had, was angry with her father for a while because she didn't know that story. She thought he had just knew about her and walked away and come to find out that he pleaded with my grandmother to give my mother to him. So she never met Early Small. However, we did meet his mother, which was Grandma Ida. That's what we call her. And my sister and I spent two summers with Grandma Ida in Shreveport. So... She embraced my mother. She embraced us. And so we did get to experience a side of his family without ever physically meeting him. He and my mother did exchange letters and they did talk on the phone, but she never physically met him. But we did meet his family, his mother, his sisters, his nieces, and his nephews there in Shreveport. And they embraced us with open arms as if he had introduced us to them himself. I love that you know your family history. It gives me so much respect for you because a lot of brothers we don't know. Don't ask, you know, we don't we don't know, but you know names, you know, you know the story. You've yeah. made a point of knowing as much as you can about where you come from. That's very important. I'm going to throw this in. I'm going to tell you why it is important. My sister's son, her middle son, wanted to do a family tree. Mm-hmm. And so the little white kids in his family, you know, they had all kind of branches and stuff. And he was a little stuck because he couldn't go back very far. And I said, I'm going to make it my mission. I will not have sitting somewhere. At least know the name. Exactly. You may not have all of the backstory, but I'll be damned. You're going to have some names. That's right, brother. And so I recently put a tree as far back as I could, in particular for his mother's side. And I just recently was able to find a physical picture of my great-grandmother's headstone and my grandfather's Mm. headstone. And I sent that to my mother. So there's a picture of Grandma Ida's headstone and uh, Grandpa Early's headstone because my mother was not able to make either one of those services when they passed away. So if I'm following you correctly, brother... 
the story that you've told is that your mother was born as a result of a relationship, and I'm going to use this word, an affair that she had with Mr. Early Small. That is correct, yes. And you were born of a relationship that your mom had, which was an affair, with your father. You better connect the dots, yes, sir. So that's generational spirits right there. I'm just going to go there. That's just generational spirits that are living our families and perpetuate cycles over and over and over again. And over, yes. Those are spirits. That ain't just accident. Those are spirits that live in our bloodline that fuck with us like that in the same way generation after generation after generation. In some ways, the same thing you experienced with your father is what your mother experienced with her father, father absence. Absolutely, yeah. Mm -hmm. I would love to know what took Mr. Early Small out to San Francisco because at that time from Louisiana or even from Houston, that's a vision. That's a vision that somebody has of something more and something better for themselves to make that kind of migration. Yeah, I would have loved to known a little bit more about his backstory. Mm -hmm. So I do have a picture of him. There's two... Well, there's one picture where he's in a suit and then on his obituary, we have that picture. He was in the military. Wow. And so my sister does have some siblings, but there are no names on the obituary. So we can't even begin to look for them because we don't know their names. And everybody probably would know they are dead and gone now. Did your mother's mother, who had the affair with Mm -hmm. Mr. Early Small, did her husband who was in jail, did he and Mr. Small ever meet? Did they have any kind of drama? I don't know. Okay. What I would guess to venture that they did not know each other, but because Shreveport is such a small city and probably was even smaller at the time, maybe, I'm sure they all ran in the same circle. But whether or not they actually knew each other, I do not know. Now, how old was or is your sister's, your nephew, when you made the family tree for him? How old is was he? Now, this was just a couple of months ago, so he is... Malachi's 13. That's kind of where we are in your storytelling. You were 11 and 12 when you saw your dad out front yeah. naked with the butcher knife. Yeah. So Malachi, yeah. I love that name. Malachi is questioning. He's wanting to know when you were 13, where were you in that journey? Were you starting to identify as a fatherless son or were you clear that that was a part of your life that was missing for you? What was going through your head at 13? It started out that way for me. I never considered myself a fatherless child. And because of where we grew up, there were so many others like me in the same situation. Mm-hmm. It was not abnormal. Right. It just wasn't. It was more abnormal to have somebody to say that they had their father in the household. Mm-hmm. And when they were, the stories or the experiences I was privy to, they were so tumultuous. Right. All this fussing and fighting and cussing and police and knives and band-aids and Neil scoring on cuts <laughs> and bruises. Right. Who needs that? Right. So it wasn't until I became an adult, I joined the military, and I started experiencing other people from other parts of the country. I'm like, oh, okay, maybe I should have had a father in the household. And then you start understanding that that's the norm. Mm -hmm. And the way that you grew up was this micro place in life and time. And then I started attributing some of my issues to not having a father in the house. Oh, well, that's the reason why I do this. That's the reason why I act like this. That's the reason why this happened to me. And so then you go on that journey in an effort to explain some of the deficiencies you feel that you have in your life. Mm -hmm. The picture that you paint is of the brothers who leave 
because they don't know how to be husbands and fathers. And the brothers that stay still don't know how to be husbands and fathers. In many cases, it was something that was never passed down to them because they didn't have it either. When your mom moved away to another part of Houston, did the, and she wasn't saying she officially broke it off with your father, I would imagine that there were gaps, longer periods of time when you wouldn't see him or hear from him at all. How did that affect Most you? definitely. Robert, it was so natural, I didn't recognize the impact until I became an adult. Okay. I just learned how to move and be without him as I always had done. I would call or our back call to him was, we need some money. Mm-hmm. The car broke down. I'm graduating. I want to go on a field trip. And if my mother didn't have the money, then we would contact him. And she would either drive out to him or he would drive out to us. And if he drove out to us, depending on what time of day, I would still be in school. I would not see him or I would be at work trying to make my own money. And if we did see him again, it was no more than 15 or 20 minutes. And it was very simple conversation. How much do you need? Is this enough? And call me if you need something else. Okay, so even though mom broke off the relationship with dad, there was always a phone number. You knew how to reach him. He was available when there was when his money was needed. He did come by to deliver that money. He still kept some tie to you all, and your mom still kept some tie to him. That is correct. Absolutely, yeah. Okay. And was there ever a point where even that was broken? As you became an adult, where you had no contact with him at all and no way to reach him? No, not here until maybe the last three or four years. I was always able to go to the house that he lived in because he and his wife had separated, oh, years and years ago. Mm -hmm. So I always used the address to where he lived. I could put my hands on him if I needed to. And again, until recently, four or five years ago, that remained true up until then. So he eventually did your dad, leave his wife? No, she left him. She left him. Mm. When you become spiritually mature, you can see it from all sides without judgment. Yeah. And just understand why these choices were made when they were. So up until a couple of years ago, you did have some way to reach your father. So did the relationship grow over the years as you became a man or it just sort of stayed still? I actually grew I wanted something to be able to remember him by because I understood everybody was getting older and I had wanted to take him out to dinner a couple of times. Time just wouldn't allow. So whatever time was available or he would allow me, I took that and appreciated it. Mm -hmm. So the last time I saw him, I had found out that he had had a stroke and he was well into recovery by this time and he needed some medicine. And so I was intending to give him $40. I inadvertently gave him 200 because I went into the wrong pocket. Mm-hmm. And I got three-fourths of the way home and realized I had inadvertently given him $200 and I wanted to give him 40 I started to turn around and go back and get my 200 And something told me, no, let that man have that 200 And it was a fight the rest of the way home because I started to weigh what he gave me versus the 200 I had given him. And I was pissed. Mm. And I was mad because it did me quake. But later on, it settled well in my spirit that I could do that for him in spite of what I consider the lack of his participation in my life. And so it made me it made me feel good that, hey, I was able to do something for him. And unbeknownst to me, that was the last time I physically saw him or talked to him. 
So when you either met up with him or talked to him on the phone and he shared with you that he'd had a stroke, did you share with him that you had those TIAs back in the day? I did. I had stopped by the house and he had a home health nurse aide who happened to be his girlfriend too. She was there and she kind of filled in some of the gaps. He was at a Home Depot, passed out and come to find out he had had a stroke. He kept everybody separate so there really was no way for anybody to contact us to let us know that something had happened to him. I am not even sure whether or not who other than his mother knew that we were his children, you know, in his circle, his mm-hmm. tight circle. I just don't know who else knew besides his mother that he had these two children from Elizabeth. So by the time you were yes. meeting with him and finding this information, he was already separated from his wife. So during the time that he was married to his wife, did they have children together? Yes, he had three sons and one daughter from her now there are other children in this story so okay let me just catch my breath so you have one two three four you have four siblings from your father and plus your sister so you have five siblings yes six and and, and it's actually more than that but I'll, i'll go into it though okay are you in relationship with these siblings not a one no i couldn't pick them out of a lineup if i had to okay well, let me tell you a story. I used to work at a company that sold pagers, and I had the instance of working with a gentleman who owned a pager business. Mm-hmm. And so we uh, went on a date. Beautiful date. We were at Papa Do's. The food was great. I am driving him back home to drop him off in Southeast Houston. And somehow we got on the subject of father. Mm-hmm. And when that man told me, he's like, yeah, you know, I don't have a great relationship with my dad. And he owns a shop right around the corner from my house off of, he said the street name. Mm-hmm. There wasn't a lot of stuff on that street. It was vacant lot, open fields, and my dad's junkyard. And when he said the name of that street, I slammed on the brake. <laughs> and we were at a light. And I was like, what is your father's name? Uh-huh. He says his name is Charles Lee Manley. I couldn't get him home fast enough. So that's your father's name? Charles Lee Manley. The gentleman I had just had dinner with was my father's son. Wow. And he lived maybe seven, eight minutes away from the old apartment we used to live in before we moved to another part of Houston. So my dad had a concentration of children outside of his marriage. Okay, so hold on. Are you saying Uh that the man that you went on a date with was not one of the three sons that Charles had with... No, this was a child he had with another woman that he was not married to. Wow. Wow. I shared this information with my mother and my mom, and and I'm a grown man now, and my mom and dad have not been in relationship for going on 10, 15 years now. She got in her car the next day and went down there and cussed that man out. Yeah, I know she did. At his junkyard. And I think on her assumption, I'm the only one you're with. And to come to find out, and I think she always knew, but I think her issue was now my child has to be confronted with the shit that we did. Right, exactly. So shortly thereafter, my dad made a statement that he wanted all of his children to get together so that they could meet each other. And my mom told me this, and my response was, well, you tell him they don't rent the Astrodome out for those types of events. Mm. Because now I'm understanding there are siblings all over, particularly Southeast Houston. Okay, so wait a minute. Because Papa was a rolling stone. No doubt about it, brother. 
No doubt about it. Let's go back to the car, though, because you're moving too fast for me. So you screech the brakes over. (laughs) You realize that this is your brother, basically, in the car with you. Did y'all have that revelation together, or did you keep it to yourself and just drop him off? I kept that to myself because I couldn't process it. Because now I am dealing with, because nothing happened, nothing sexual happened, because this is the first date. But some of the shit we said on the phone to each other. Right leading up to the date, I had to process that within myself because now I am feeling defiled. Right. Um, I am hurt and I am questioning my own level of morality. Right. In that instance. And I'm feeling dirty. Right. It's back to shame. I am whirling around. It's the shame. And I'm whirling around in what could have happened. Yeah. And then to find out after what could have happened had happened. Wait a minute. Okay. Y'all never followed up with one another again. You never spoke to that brother again. Oh, God, no. He called a couple of times. And because I worked where I worked at, those couple of times I did have to speak to him. And he was like, you know, I'm calling to take care of business. But what happened? I'm like, no, I found somebody else, somebody I was talking to before you. And we've decided to move forward. I never shared with him. And I don't know why to this day, why I did not. One, it was a shame. How do I explain to somebody that I have a father that has fathered children to the extent that i could just by happenstance run into one and date one yeah this is intriguing to me because you're so about the brotherhood that you let and i understand why you did it i'm just want to probe a little deeper like you let your brother slip through your hands because that's your brother and here's the thing i wasn't at that stage that i am now right so i i did not have that brotherhood revelation my relationship with men at that point that I met him, and I'm still in my, I don't think I'm 26 or 27 yet. My relationship with men at that point is still very tumultuous. My understanding of relationship with men is that we either going to fuck or fight. Right, right. I I'm not it. sure which order that's going to be in, but I'm pretty sure those are the two ways that I can relate at that point to black men. Up to that point, that was the only two ways. Well, you just answered the question. You were 26. I mean, we ain't no shit at 26. So I get it now. I thought this was more <laughs> recent in your life. Oh, no, okay. no, 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 no. Okay. I would not have. See, again, kudos to Miss Elizabeth, because this is the kind of shit that women have to deal with. And the sisters will handle it. You see, she got right in that car the next day and went down there and let him know. <laughs> and I'm like, why are you going? I mean, that's been up 10 years. And I think the issue was the gentleman, he was so close to my age. I think he was maybe like year and a half not even a year he's maybe like 12 months Mm -hmm. right at a year Mm -hmm. older than me you know i'm thinking i'm the only other one besides your wife there's really there's not only this and there's most likely some others too that's right but to get that revelation you know you want to go back yep so yeah wow and then what do you know about any of the three sons and the daughter that from his wife what do you know about them what happened was is that two of them got sick during the kind of the height of the hiv aids epidemic okay and so my dad was sharing with my mom you know they haven't been in relationship but you know they stayed in contact again the kids need school money that kind of thing he shared with them that they had gotten sick this was before either one of them had died so when he told her about the third son getting sick she said, hey, do I need to take Christopher and Rosetta? Is there something in the bloodline you haven't told me? Mm-hmm. And that's when he shared with her that information. <sighs> and actually, two of them passed away from complications from AIDS. So this was in, when was this around the 80s, 90s, 2000s? What's the time frame? Uh, this had to have 
been 92, no, this was more around like 93, 94. Oh, so this was in the height of just, yeah, I got you. Okay. Yeah. So there's one that you know of. Is the third son still living? I don't know. You don't know. Okay. I do not know. No. Okay. So when you met with him, I think you said it was in person and the girlfriend who was the caretaker, the home health aide, shared some details about the Home Depot and the collapse and how the stroke came about for your father. Mm -hmm. And at that point, you shared with him that you also had some history with TIA. You also said earlier that you and your father never really went there in terms of some of the story points that you're telling me now. When you're looking at him, and you've only seen him, you know, really as a man a couple of times in your life. Are you wanting to go deeper with him or are you sensing in the moment that he can only take so much? I sense that that was as much as he could give. Mm-hmm. And I accepted that that was as much as he could give. And I know the main point I wanted to make during this conversation and before I forget is that I finally got to a point that I could appreciate the gift of my father's absence in my life. Mm-hmm. And with that, I am settled in my spirit that he gave what he was capable of giving and that he did the best that he could with the tools that he had and that I am not responsible for any of his deficiencies in the area of fatherhood. That is not my burden to carry. I am here now, and all I can do is move forward, take the information I do have about him, and just construct and craft a life that pays honor to the advancement and the building on of those few building blocks that he gave me. Mm-hmm. I appreciate the gift of absence that my father gave me. We'll get into that because that's a great revelation. I just want to go back to in that moment, you're feeling like when you're standing there or sitting there across from him and he's had this stroke and you're sharing a little bit of your history, you're just feeling like he can't really go where I want to take this conversation. Did you think he just was oh, too yeah. emotionally blocked off or just didn't have the intellectual capacity or what? what is it about him that you thought couldn't take your going there with him? I understood he didn't have the emotional IQ. Okay. I completely and clearly understood and that took the frustration off of me because I didn't want to frustrate him. Mm-hmm. I completely understood he could not give me what he did not have. Because he was still asking me about children. You need to have children so you'll have somebody take care of you when you get old. And I'm looking at him, I'm like, well, hell, you're old too, and none of your children are around to take care of you. So having children does not guarantee anybody that you'll have somebody to care for you. And I just found it ironic that he would say that, and he had multitudes of children, and not a one of them was around to care for him. So I'm going to stay right there, because this is a major moment for a father and son. How old were you when this conversation, when you're sitting across from him talking about the stroke? I had to have been at that time. I was in my late 40s. I'm somewhere around 45 or 46 now. Okay. So 45 is 46. That's a moment that every father and son has to come to. If they're blessed enough to live long enough, regardless of what the circumstances were, to sit eye to eye and to look and to have whatever conversation they're having. And the son comes to the realization because I have been right in that moment that you're talking about where I realized that, you know what? Mm -hmm. And I don't want to say it's an upper hand because it's not an upper hand. But after all of the trauma and the emotions and the confusion and the the self-blaming and the self-destructive behavior because your father abdicated or was absent, after all of that experience and you're finally sitting there ready and able and willing to have this conversation with your father and you realize that oh snap he can't do this he can't do this Mm -hmm. 
Not because he doesn't want to. He's not there. He hasn't done the work that I've done to sit in this moment and go there. That's a moment. Exactly. And in that moment, what happens is you let your father off the hook. You let him off the hook. You're like, okay, he can't do this. And I'm not mad at him that he can't do this. Thank God I've done this so that I've arrived at this place. He's not there. He's not there. So let me go ahead. And that's a blessing in that moment because I was ready. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to say this and I'm going to say that and I'm going to tell him this. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, he's he not emotionally, he can't. He doesn't have the emotional IQ. Exactly. I just fill up all of these words and analogies and he's just going to be dumbfounded. Yep. And the joy in it of it, I think some of the joy and release came from none of it was intentional on his part. That revelation that I don't believe in my heart of hearts and at his core, any of his absence or any of his neglect or any of his kind of marginalizing or what I felt like was marginalizing my existence was intentional. He didn't have the tools. He did not have the tools to build fatherhood with me. Now, those other children, I don't know, but I know for me, he didn't have the tools to do it with me. And I am so okay with that now because now I know it wasn't intentional. Yeah, and that takes us right back to what you said when you said, I appreciate the gift of absence that he gave me. Some young black boys are able to grow up and become men under the eyes and guidance of their father. He's there, he's teaching, he's guiding, he's mentoring, and they become men in his presence. Well, some of us become men in the absence of our father. Mm. We become men and his eyes don't see it. His ears don't hear it. His words don't go into it. He's absent. Even if he's physically present, he's not actively and consciously trying to raise me. He might be providing for me. He might be putting food on the table and a roof over my head. So in his mind, he thinks he's raising me, but he's not actively, consciously bringing me to manhood. So as a result, I become a man and he don't even see it. Yeah. He don't even see it. I have to go out into the world and make that happen through experience, through fucking up, through self-destruction, through teaching, through bringing water to my own well and filling it in various ways, books, whatever, study, however you get there. You become a man in your father's absence. So I had to go out into the world and become a man and piece it together and figure it out and fall into the traps and pull myself back up and try to put together what kind of man I wanted to be. And in that, brother, you know, we're fighting genes. We talked about generational spirits. We're fighting genes. We're fighting spirits that we don't even know exist in us that we fight exactly 